It's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Hello, and welcome to In the Green Room with me, Dunya J. Karam, as your host. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Samuel Harps, the artistic director of the Shades Repertory Theater and the director and writer of Black and Blue, a short film and now teleplay that is available through Standby for Places on uh, your Spotify or Apple podcasts. Okay. Ah, we finally get to meet. Finally meet. Although, although, uh, although virtually. Yes, pandemic yes, times. Yes, um, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to read your play and then getting to see the uh, filmed version of it. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's very, it's very, very cool. And I think it translates well to the podcast format that we have going right now on Standby for Places. I wanted to start off by thanking you for joining me today and, and chatting kind of about your work and the Shades Repertory Theater. Um, and then, um, kind of seeing where, where this dialogue can go. Um, yeah, so during this pandemic, mm-hmm. um, it's been difficult as theater artists yes. to, to express ourselves. Um, that being said, you did a fantastic job with, with coming together with this video and being so, with material being so of the times with black mm-hmm. and blue. So yes, yes. Um, how, how did that process begin? What inspired the play? Yes, uh, again, thank you for, so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for days now. Um, oh, and Dunya, I, you know, our theater has been in existence, Shades Repertory Theater, for over 20 years uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Rockland County. And our last performance was African American History Month in February uh, oh, wow. the 22nd, which is coming up. So, um, you know, and at that last performance, we heard some ruffling in the crowd, but we weren't quite sure. Everyone was so uncertain about what was going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, literally, just like that, afterwards, uh, not knowing it was our last performance, we found mm-hmm. out days later that that was it. Yeah. Uh, we had a whole slew of um, programming for March and April and May and June, uh, mm-hmm. our one-act festival, our uh, film festival that, uh, you know, promotes African-American and female uh, film directors. So everything was gone. Everything was shot. Uh, yeah. Personally, as a writer, I did not know what I was going to do. Doing I just could not find any kind of creative inspiration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had not experienced a writer's block before, but of course, uh, the pandemic was something brand new for all of us as artists. Yeah. Um, the most encouraging thing was our actors. I have a troupe of 23 actors and they were asking, what are we gonna do now? <laughs> Not yeah. what are you gonna do now, but what are we gonna do? Suddenly with no theater, that's all we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I was contacted by Irvington Town Hall Theater who I've done some work with in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, also for African-American History Month. And they were doing an incubator series. Uh, they were reaching out to artists and they were asking artists of uh, all discipline, dancers and writers and painters, what are you doing to cope? And I literally had nothing. Uh, so again, this was early April and they said, well, we'd like to know what you're working on. And uh, George Floyd literally had just happened. And I have a number of African-American NYPD uh, police officers that I had talked to about Black Lives Matter. And 
So it was uh, timely, but it was, it was the thing to write about. Um, the pandemic itself, I didn't know how to approach because even at that time, there was still so much uncertainty about the numbers and what's going on. Yeah. So I thought that that was key. Um, I didn't want to specifically uh, target Black Lives Matter, but I wanted to target the police officers, in particular the police officers of color. Talked to a couple of friends, and they were having that that odd conflict of interest, if you will. You know, I'm out here in the streets in the Black Lives Matter rally, and my neighborhood is getting torn to pieces. You know, by um, you know some of these people that were looting were relatives of theirs, you know, I mean, the people that they had gone to school with. So they were at a, at a strange dilemma. And I so wanted to write about it. Uh, what does that feel like, you know, uh, being out in the streets? I'm doing my job. Uh, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing what I'm paid to do. I've been a police officer, this person for a number of years, and I'm here because uh, it's what I do. Right. But they were getting, uh, you know, blasted, you know, yeah. things thrown at them, spit at called many names by their people and peers. So it was literally the thing to write about and it literally bounced off the page um, as a writer. And for me, I just needed a project and it was like, yes. And <laughs> this is it. It's something to write about, you yeah. know. Uh, and the next question, of course, uh, Dunya, was how to do it safely. Um, yeah. So, you know, there were no per, uh, parameters at this point on how to do it safely. So I wanted to work with the people that I knew um, in their homes. Uh, the couple that we chose for this, uh, Maisha and Damien are very good friends. In fact, they met on stage uh, during one of the performances I had cast them in. And oh, fantastic. Yes, exactly. And the director and I, when we saw them look at each other, the first reading they had on stage, we looked at each other and said, yeah, something's going on. They just yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, Six months later, they were married, you know, uh, the following wow. year, they had a child. So I had a ready-made um, cast, you know, uh, we worked in their homes. Uh, uh, Maisha is a school teacher, Damien's a cameraman. And again, they had a young son, Micah. So I literally centered the story around what I had, you know, mm -hmm. uh, young child, school teacher, African-American NYPD officer. Uh, went into their homes and literally shot. And understand, I, I had no uh, experience. I had done uh, photography in the old days, I call it, you know, dark room in the bathroom, heavy cameras. Uh, right. Technology literally lent to this moment. Mm -hmm. And the two mediums literally fit like a glove. Yeah. Uh, I was not a big fan, of course, of social media. I honestly say my daughter pushed me. It's that is the new thing. <laughs> well, it's definitely useful when it comes to self-promotion, but it can also be very exhausting. The theatrical world has kind of shifted towards Zoom. Right. And so like that sort of thing, it's easy to get burnt out from something that's so seemingly impersonal, even though its purpose is to connect. Exactly, exactly. And that was the dilemma. You know, um, I wasn't a big fan of Zoom. I'd seen some other others that doing the Zoom in a bunch of boxes, but mm -hmm. I wanted to do uh, live theater <laughs> in a mm -hmm. box, so to speak, but on, on location. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did go right into their homes. I stayed masked and as did my sound person. And mm -hmm. they of course lived together. So we kept distance from them, but we were able to do it comfortably and uh, shoot, you know, and 
the results were like, wow, you know, this is, it, it looked pretty good. You know, I mean, it was some bumps and bruises there, but the story, that was the main thing for me was, was translating the story. Can I tell this story now that would normally be on stage? And I tell you, it was, it was, Julia was not much blocking, not much change as if we were doing it on the stage, but it seemed almost like three-dimensional. We had a lot more leadway. We can move the camera, we can go here, we can, you know, uh, the baby was crying throughout and we couldn't get it to stop. But I found out later on through a lot of the feedback that that added to the tension in the scene. Yeah, absolutely. And you feel it when you're listening to it. So not only did you write a play, because as it it reads, it reads as a play. Um, So you can put it on stage and it'll adapt well. You clearly filmed it and it adapted really well. And then now on the podcast, so you've just broadened how you can... um, present this piece through so many different mediums and uh, hopefully reach a wider audience. So that stories that are um, so, so tense and so of the times and relevant um, kind of can be exposed to people who aren't necessarily always on, on the pulse of what's going on. Exactly. Uh, And more people, uh, Junior saw the play and one day more people saw uh, that episode then saw everything we produced in 2019 combined, mm-hmm. you know, in one day. And that was the game changer. Um, so I upgraded my equipment and I had inspiration. Suddenly That's I was fantastic. back in the, the seat, you know, I was a playwright again, you know, and yeah. uh, so I, I, you know, the next play we were actually doing was scheduled for May. Mm-hmm. which was a 20-year-old play about an environmental disaster. So uh, that was ra- uh, Racing the Sun. And mm-hmm. it's still, I rewrote it. And like, as you said earlier, I did not, I wrote them as a play because I, mm-hmm. I think and feel on the stage. Um, mm-hmm. Everything that comes out of me uh, comes out stage. So when the camera's in my hand, I'm just literally filming a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next thing we embarked on also lent to that isolation People mm-hmm. couldn't go anywhere. So same actors and moving into their home. And at this point, you know, people had started to get at least um, tested, mm-hmm. you know. So we were working with people and I felt a lot safer, even though I was masked. So mm-hmm. it became uh, easier to shoot. And yeah. uh, once again, as a playwright, if you're not writing and you're not producing, and we got so used to the format, we would write a play. Right and literally knew that we had a stage that we were gonna put it on at our theater and that was gone. But, mm-hmm. uh, but now with this, and people have asked me recently, um, and it's been funny because my theater friends, I'm such a purist. I look at you now, you're a filmmaker, <laughs> you know? You're not, yeah. oh, oh. Honest, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still in love, but that's what we have. Yeah, and you've got to use what's at your disposal. And one of the great things about the theatrical medium is this symbiotic relationship that the players and the production team and the, you know, collaborative forces that be have with the viewers. And it's palpable and it's it's present. Um, But you did mention before, there was a moment that was a game changer uh, about the views with the video. So do you think that even though we're translating into a more digital kind of expression of theatricality and theater storytelling, that there is still some semblance of a symbiotic relationship? 
I, yes, of course. And I am constantly fighting with myself. If, you know, I, I can't wait for, I love theater and I can't mm -hmm. wait for theater, the hardwood to come back. But I, I'm a storyteller first. And mm. that's what it's all about. Again, I've upgraded my equipment. I've started to work with people that know sound, people that know editing, you know, people that know music and how to do it well. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really in the game. If this is the new normal for now, then it, it does work for me. Most mm -hmm. And do you see this kind of integration of um, technology and different uh, mediums of storytelling kind of being integrated in the Shades Repertory Theater's kind of future trajectory? I think so. I think so. Even when theaters come back, we'll do plays, but I'd love... Mm -hmm. Again, I, I do, I'm, I'm a recluse by nature, which is odd, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I do love the attention now, yeah. you know? I mean, again, uh, the playwright uh, for me, and I was okay with it. The, the one major film that I ever saw was many years ago. And the playwright is usually just shuffled off, you know, after the play is, is given to an actor and given to a director, uh, the writer's usually all forgotten. You know, uh, and I've become a director by default. I'm not a natural director, you know, and I always sought people out to direct my work uh, more for perspective than anything. Yeah, now, absolutely. Now it's, it's putting the story together and having to be a director uh, and mm -hmm. having to be an editor or being close with an editor. You know, I'm a musician, so I've had to compose the music and put the score to it, you know. So all of that stuff, I, I utilize all those different talents that yeah. I did before, you know, so it's, uh, it's huge. It's huge. And no longer cool. dilemma. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, it definitely is reflective in the work. And for those who are viewing this, we do have the links for the videos for you to view. Uh, so please check them out as well as the podcast, yeah. uh, just as a heads up so that we can keep engagement happening and, and sharing this kind of content because the story really is dynamic. And um, it's something that lends itself to providing a perspective that people don't, aren't so readily able to sympathize with. Right, right, exactly. Um, so I, I kind of would like to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, when, when coming up with this story and this family dynamic um, with this police officer that you were talking about, um, one thing about these two videos that really caught my attention is that when you're in a police officer's, officer's uniform, you're a target. When you're a person of color in this climate, you're a target. Right. When you're uh, out there in the world, it doesn't matter how you present, right. COVID doesn't see targets, everyone's a target. Right. And there's that very stark delineation between those two kind of discussions happening that's really, really interesting and dynamic and worth investing and listening to. Right. So right. How, di how did you kind of um, get into that curiosity of, of, you know what, let's focus on the police officer. Let's yeah. focus on the humanity of, of being a police officer exactly. in this climate. Exactly. One of the lines that the character Jonah had was, I put on a uniform and I'm a target. I take the uniform off and I'm a target. Right. Uh, I mean, personally, uh, I still, get stopped at least twice a year for what we call DWB, driving while black. And it's a constant, it's a constant issue. Uh, 
you know. Yeah. Uh, An I, unnecessarily constant issue. Unnecessarily, but. right. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, we went through, I went through the 60s and I went through the 70s. And, you know, each time, I mean, I was raised as an army brat. So we were raised primarily in Germany and then traveled around a lot. But, you know, mm-hmm. you know, those times we thought that was, those were the moments when there was going to be change in systemic mm-hmm. racism. That's the moment in 1968. That's the moment in 1974. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kings and, and the Malcolm X's and all of those. But now with social media, uh, days after George Floyd uh, was seen murdered in mm-hmm. eight minutes and 46 seconds, three days later in a burnt out building in war-torn Syria, there was a memorial for George Floyd done by an artist. Mm-hmm. That's the power of social media. So I do really feel that this is change. Of mm-hmm. course, we have a huge change at the top at the White House that's going to make a difference. But, you know, it, it's a lot easier to change laws and, and policies. But to change people's ideology and the way they think about someone is a, is a whole different animal, you know. Mm-hmm. So I do, I feel that there, there is change and I'm quite hopeful, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this play, him being a target as a police officer when he takes off the uniform and when he puts it on, is, is a, a black man's constant dilemma, whatever your profession is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how uh, Louis Gates, I mean, he got, you know, arrested going into his own home. And this is a well-respected yeah. African-American. So, you know, it's a, it's a long time coming and I do see much change because of social media, but it is, it is a constant dilemma. Um, you you brought up this uh, memorial in, in Syria. I, I think that's also important uh, as, as kind of a marker for intersectionality too. Yes. People are able to identify, although they might not completely intersect or, or, you know, the experiences are not the same, but there is this element of, okay, I can identify with this narrative to some degree and I sympathize and empathize with that, which is one of the reasons why the first act of having this Af- African-American police officer is so important because they aren't mutually exclusive. Right, you don't just right. cut your identity in half and that's exactly, it. Exactly. Um, and and justice is universal. I mean, it truly mm-hmm. is. I mean, if you're in China or you're in Indonesia, Vietnam, Canada, you know, yeah. Georgia or New York or, you know, wherever, you know, injustice is quite universal and people were able to actually identify, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I remember, um, having a discussion with my my mother actually when uh the black lives matters movement was starting to have a lot more traction and uh i my parents had me a little later in life um and i'm the daughter of immigrants i am a palestinian uh woman who is first generation in the united states yeah (laughs) so i remember my mother talking to me about moving to the united states in the in the 70s and with all of her political involvement back then and now it yeah. kind of resurfacing in a new way. And because of the virus, they're, they're older. And right. so um, although the impulse is there because it's something that's like, you know, this is an ongoing issue that we thought that we were actually pushing forward is resurfacing. It's very, it's a very interesting push and pull uh, generational wise. It is. Uh, that this conversation still needs to be had. It's it just exactly, exactly, um, kind of absurd. It is. Uh, <laughs> you had mentioned before a little bit about 
this first project that, that you were working on, Black and Blue, uh, inspiring some other stuff. Is there anything that's going on right now that you would like to kind of give us a sneak peek of or a preview or something to look forward to? Yes, by all means. Um, there, first of all, I mean, with the Incubator series, it got mm -hmm. so much good response that uh, they're doing a, in March, mm -hmm. um, Black and Blue is part of their one act play festival that's gonna be on. And they've asked me to look at a lot of the comments that we got and do an episode, another episode of it. So I do plan on listening to what they, their responses will be. Uh, and uh, some people have asked, what about the son-in-law that he didn't arrest during the looting? You know, approach that. Uh, I'd like to also talk about the teacher. Um, she was contemplating at the time if to go back to school, how to go back to school safely. Um, and the next project, uh, I wanted to focus on an artist. Um, so we have a play that's coming out uh, in celebration of Women's History Month. Uh, called um, Sky's Dance. And it's about a, a dancer, a young dancer who's in April when the pandemic was still swirling. Um, she's trying to do an audition for a prestigious New York City dance company uh, through Zoom. So it's, uh, it's a short piece and it's following her anxiety and how she's gonna get this done. Is beautifully uh, acted by uh, an incredible New York City dancer, actress named Dahlia Dahl, uh, Dasberg. So I'm really looking forward to that uh, for May. So um, those are the pieces that are coming up, uh, sort of a black and blue part three at this point. Um, and, you know, because it's, again, it's timely, I can actually format it to exactly what's going on. You know, I'm going to talk about how hard it is to get the vaccine. I'm going to talk about uh, things like that. So it's an ongoing dialogue with that piece. Oh, I, I love that because there, there's a to be continued moment there. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as turning out work like this during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic when we were just focusing on uh, theater production, the gestation period that I found, and I'm not sure uh, if this is the same for you, is a bit longer Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, for for the theatrical world oh, yeah. to help realize certain visions. Right. Um, so how how was that adjustment to to turn over something so quickly versus having that time to allow the piece to breathe? Wonderful question, Malay. <laughs> <laughs> I try. No, that was beautiful. I mean, it was put to me. We we actually joked about it. We would sometimes do, and we would literally three months uh, in rehearsal three times a week, hell week. And uh, we usually were only able to do at most five or six performances, you know? And when you have nothing else and that's what you know, it doesn't seem like it's, oh my God, it's, you know, it doesn't seem like it's that, you know? Uh, with shooting films uh, and the safety precautions that we have to take, uh, the actors have to come in the day of uh, and be off book uh, be ready to perform. We block it immediately when they get here, depending on the location, and we shoot it all in one day, you know, and that changes the game, you know. Uh, we mm -hmm. do two or three Zoom rehearsals, which are kind of messy, but they're necessary. But again, it's pretty much done in one long day. 
Um, and that's a huge change. Takes some getting used to, but it's something. But on that same note, Gunya, it's, it's the human connection that I miss about the theater, obviously. Um, that was my, I'm not a New Yorker, so it was my family, it was my social life, uh, it was my interaction. Um, and I literally just miss, you know, hugging someone or, or you know, the, the after parties, yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the rehearsal process where you discover so much stuff. Yeah, you you formulate these bonds too. It's really about cultivating um, a community and an ensemble kind of. There's there's a culture around being theatrical artists all across the board, right? You, you know, some actors go to have a drink afterwards. The director and the playwright kind of talk about what and, and dismember what's going on, and and they bring it back in and. You're, you're totally right that that human connection almost feels like it's just as important in the process as as the product because the product reflects all of that emotional and personal investment and those bonds really manifesting so i totally i get that i miss that too oh my gosh can't wait to say i'm in rehearsal i'm sorry i can't exactly. you know <laughs> you know i rehearsal tonight i rehearsal tonight yeah yeah so yeah, Absolutely. that's the part I really, really miss. Understandably so. Well, um, I honestly cannot wait until we can see and view um, part three of Black and Blue and all of the other pieces that you guys have going on. I would like to thank you for the time that you have spent chatting with me a little bit and um, so that I can finally get to meet you. Yes. Um, hopefully sometime soon in person. Yes. Uh, and thank you for sharing your work with us. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, I could not have thought of a, a better perspective to include in our African-American History Month. Thank you very much for having me. It was much, much appreciated. Of course, it, it, is, it is a pleasure to provide a platform for voices that deserve a platform to speak out. So hopefully we can get those people coming in and listening and and continue to engage with things that are obviously growing in a very positive way. It's been a pleasure and we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Thank you again for joining us in the green room presented by Standby for Places. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk with Samuel. And I would like to take a moment to bring your attention to a couple of these Black-owned businesses that you can help support, not just during Black History Month, but any time of the year. Click on some of these links and check it out. Uh, explore, continue the dialogue, and let's keep this narrative moving forward. Have a great day, guys. This has been Standby for Places in the Green Room. New episodes come out every Wednesday, and interviews come out Fridays after a show concludes. For more information about Standby for Places, check out our website at standbyforplaces.org. All links discussed about in the podcast are located down below in the description. For more interviews and behind-the-scenes looks, check out our Facebook at facebook.com standbyforplaces, and also our Instagram at standbyforplacespod.